Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world, spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com, music for your mind, body, and soul. Dr. Jennifer Daniels, and you're listening to Healing with Dr. Daniels. And it is Tuesday, August 2nd, 2016. Where did the year go? And today's topic is the rise and fall of flu mist. Can the nasal spray flu vaccine be redeemed? And this is really shocking. This is word for word a headline in an email your doctor got not too long ago. And the shocking thing about this is it talks about saving a vaccine, not saving people. More to the point, not even saving people who use the vaccine. And so tonight I'm going to talk about how devotion to marketing, devotion to uh, products, leaves a lot of questions about patient benefit uh, unanswered. And so we're going to take a look at uh, at the, you know, the story of Medscape. That's going to be our uh, kind of jumping off point. And what we're going to find is the true scandal about vaccines. It's not that you do or don't cause autism. It's that they just plain don't work. Just plain don't work. It's like getting in a car, turning on the engine, and the car goes nowhere. And that's the true scandal behind vaccines. Now, of course, uh, it was, it's an annoyance. While one might not want to say vaccines cause autism, we can certainly say vaccines do not prevent autism. And that is a disappointment. I mean, autism is a major illness facing uh, young children. And so to say to a, to a mother, I want you to give your kid, you know, a series of 50 or more vaccines, none of which are going to protect them from autism. You know, she's like, whoa, wait, you're not addressing my concern. You're not addressing a major health problem facing one in 64 children. So if you've got a medical intervention that is of absolutely no benefit, then who needs to go further? So let's take a look. Let's take a look and see what the medical doctors are saying. This is what the medical industrial complex itself is saying. This is not, not me. As I said, I don't, I don't do research. I don't make accusations. I just accept confessions. All right. So this is Dr. Paul Offit. And he's in charge of the Vaccine Education Center 
at my alma mater, University of Pennsylvania. And this is Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. I don't know if they still have the McDonald's in the lobby, but they sure did when I went to medical school. And so he says, I want to talk about something that happened last Wednesday, June 22nd, 2016, at the meeting of the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices. And they made the following recommendation. In light of the evidence of poor effectiveness, a live attenuated influenza vaccine, otherwise known as flu mist, in the United States should not be used. This committee makes a recommendation for the upcoming 2016-2017 season that the flu mist should not be used. This is, <laughs> this is amazing. So a uh, committee of the medical industrial complex is saying a vaccine should not be used because it's, well, ineffective. And Dr. Offit says, how do we get here? Three years ago, we preferred flu mist over the inactivated influenza vaccine for a, free re- for a few reasons. One, it worked better than the inactivated vaccine. Hold that thought. It worked better. In children, it's easier to give. You just spray it in their nose. And it reproduces itself at the nasal surface and induces local immunity. So in other words, the virus is alive and actually reproduces itself right there on the skin of the poor little kid. And uh, in theory, this should allow the recipient who is exposed to the natural or wild-type influenza virus to shed less virus and therefore be less contagious. Okay. And they say, unfortunately, over the past few years, flu mist has underperformed compared with the inactivated vaccine, reaching a new low last year when the effectiveness was estimated to be 3%. Now, in other words, 3% of those who got it were actually protected against the flu. This is a rate that was indistinguishable from placebo. That's a medical term for doing nothing. Why did this happen? Well, yes, why did this happen? One doesn't need to know why or even understand why. If a drug does not work, if a drug is as effective as doing nothing, then that's reason enough to stop the drug. And so Dr. Offit goes on to lament, it is hard to know, but when you give an inactivated vaccine with 15 micrograms per strain into a muscle, the antigen is taken up by local lymph nodes, processed, and presented to the immune system. When you give the flu vaccine, you're giving live attenuated viruses that contain nanograms, that means 1,000 times less, rather than micrograms of hemagglutinin. To get an adequate immune response, those viruses need to replicate. And so he goes on to say the viruses are not replicating well because either poor immunity, that means the kid isn't healthy enough, or a dominant strain is affecting their capacity to replicate. Now, the dominant strain would be a good bacteria, by the way, or you know, nascent uh, organisms native to the person's body. Switching from the trivalent flu mist to the quadrivalent flu mist has not been affected over the past three years. In other words, they, they've changed the formulation of flu mist. And so what he goes on to say, these questions should be answered because Flumis was an excellent vaccine and hopefully can be redeemed. Wait a minute. How could it have been an excellent vaccine when it didn't work? This is seriously puzzling. You know, of course, there are two possibilities, right? 
either Dr. Offit suffers from a mental processing disorder or, which we're not going to say because, you know, he's, he's a brilliant guy. He's in charge of a department at an Ivy League school. So uh, mental deficiency, we're not going to look at that alternative. But what's the other choice? The other choice is the effectiveness of the vaccine is not measured by patient benefit. This is more like it. Now, I went to the University of Pennsylvania Medical School. This is a school that Dr. Office is associated with, and they have pretty high standards. So I do not think they would put someone with Alzheimer's in charge of so much at one hospital. So I'm going to accept Dr. Office's credentials as valid and give him credit for an intact reasoning process. Then, since his reasoning processes are intact, his reference to the success of Flumis must refer to something unrelated to the benefit to those who received it. So he gave three reasons uh, why it made sense. So he said it works better than the inactivated vaccine. It was later found to be, of course, false. And in children, it's easier to give and is often preferred. So in other words, market acceptance. So children would agree to take this, and parents wouldn't feel uh, so distressed watching their kids suffer with needles. And it reproduces itself with the nasal mucosal surface, and it induces local immunity, and we know that's false. The only reason that makes it a good vaccine was it was easy to sell and accepted by people that they wanted to uh, take the vaccine. Now, there's another issue when you talk about um, salvaging a vaccine or, or fixing uh, a vaccine. The problem here is uh, effectiveness. And uh, there's been a lot of blame uh, passed around in terms of why we see an upsurge in vaccine-preventable diseases. Uh, some people say, well, it's those anti-vaccination people. These anti-vaccination people are spreading lies, and they're getting people to refuse vaccines. As a result of vaccine refusal, well, more people are getting infected. Well, let's take a look at some anti-vaccine people. That's always good. It says, you won't believe which big-name groups are opposed to flu vaccine mandates. And these uh, groups are the American Medical Association opposes. So many organizations are opposed to mandatory flu vaccination and the lack of options for exemptions, including these well-known groups. Now, they are opposing mandated vaccines for their personal members. American Medical Association. In other words, they're saying they don't think doctors should have to get flu vaccines. Service Employees International Union, representing healthcare workers. In other words, these are hospital employees who are saying, oh, wait, we shouldn't have to get flu vaccine, vaccinations. The Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. Now, you can excuse them because they're kind of alternative, but at any rate, they oppose mandatory vaccines, flu shots for their members. The American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, 1.3 million members. Now we're getting some numbers here. They oppose mandating flu vaccines. American Federation of Teachers, 1.6 million members. They oppose mandatory flu vaccines. The Association of Flight Attendants, Communication Workers of America, 600,000 members. 
they oppose mandatory vaccines. Get this. The coalition of Kaiser Permanente unions. This means the doctors, the nurses, the people who give you your vaccines. They're saying, hey, we shouldn't have to have vaccines. We shouldn't be subject to mandatory vaccination. And then, of course, the United Steel, Paper, and Forestry, Rubber, Manufacturing, Energy, Allied Industrial and Service Workers International, 30,000 members, they say, wait, we should not be subject to mandatory vaccination. Now, what's curious about these groups, you might even say disturbing, is many of them, their members are in charge of making sure that you are subject to mandatory vaccination. The American Medical Association, their doctors who write orders for vaccines, the hospital employees, they're in charge of giving vaccines, stocking the vaccines, making sure they get to the floor, to your hospital room, Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, American Federal, State, County, Municipal Employees, these are people who staff all the vaccination clinics. They're saying, hey, vaccines are good for the people who walk into the doors of our clinics, but it's not good for us. We don't want these vaccines. American Federation of Teachers, a lot of vaccines are being given at schools uh, by teachers and nurses. Association of Flight Attendants, Communication Workers of America. Now these people are saying, hey, we shouldn't be subject to vaccinations, but you know they're going to start having these airline employees check to see if you're vaccinated. And the Coalition of Kaiser Permanente Unions. I mean, what is Kaiser Permanente? But, you know, the premier HMO in the country. And their workers in charge of vaccinating you and the Kaiser members say, whoa, we don't want these vaccines. So we have people in charge of administering the vaccines who have seen the effects of vaccines who are deciding that they don't want them. And what's their excuse? OSHA, a government organization that promotes workplace health and safety, strongly opposed mandatory vaccination. And they say influenza vaccination exemptions should be allowed for health care workers with valid medical contraindications to vaccinations or religious or personal objection. In other words, any flimsy excuse should do for anyone who doesn't want to get vaccination. They shouldn't be getting vaccines. This is interesting. So this is what OSHA, a government organization in charge of employee safety, says. Well, what is Kaiser Permanente Unions? What's their excuse? What's their position? They're saying employee relations and public health are not well served by the use of coercion force to achieve flu vaccination ends. And it is not consistent with our national values of openness, respect, and informed consent around medical treatments we receive. The AFL-CIO, labor union, what do they say? Healthcare workers must be permitted to refuse the annual seasonal influenza vaccine without fear of reprisal for medical, religious, or personal reasons. Another union, AFSCME, says, we cannot endorse recommendations urging that employers require influenza vaccination without allowance for medical, religious, and philosophical exemptions. What's a philosophical exemption? It means, I don't want to. I ain't gonna, and you can't make me. That's called a philosophical objection. Yeah, I think people should practice philosophical objections. So members of the AFT, a professional teachers organization, agreed that requiring teachers to accept mandatory vaccination was a change in their employment terms and could not result in termination or disciplinary action. Now, again, 
schools are at the front line of enforcing vaccination. And yet the school employees are saying, whoa, don't vaccinate us. So they're saying the mandate should be the adoption of a comprehensive standard similar to OSHA, bloodborne pathogen standard, with requirements for training, voluntary immunization, and refusal after education. Now, this sounds good, but uh, my sister worked at a uh, mental hospital. And what they did to her was they gave her this voluntary, uh, this educational thing, which was not only propaganda, but, you know, heavily uh, weighted with the suggestion that if you guys decline this vaccine, we're not going to like it. And, of course, she signed the declination form, and they just gave her a hard time. But she did not get vaccinated, and she was able to sign the form. I'm just pointing out that it's not a walk in the park. It is not an easy experience and does not really honor the person's status as an adult. Now, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, a 70-year-old organization, they have their own statement. We object strenuously to any coercion of healthcare personnel to receive influenza immunization. It is a fundamental human right not to be subjected to medical interventions without fully informed consent. Now, this is a pretty soft, I mean, really soft objection, which means that we can inform you and then force you to do it. No, it's not okay. So you cannot be subjected to medical interventions without fully formed consent, which means you cannot be subjected to medical interventions without consent. In other words, you don't need fully informed consent. You can refuse on a whim. You can refuse any way you want to. You don't need to sit through a one-hour, two-hour, five-hour, ten-hour interrogation or uh, education before you can refuse. If you want to refuse, you'd be able to refuse. Okay, you know what? I ain't doing it. And so this is, uh, this is absolutely shocking. So this is what is, is happening. You've got uh, an organization of individuals, teachers, doctors, hospital employees, HMO employees, all of them saying that, hey, we don't want to be subjected to vaccines, but we will gladly vaccinate everybody else. This is, this is absolutely outrageous. And this basically creates two classes of human beings, the overseers and the serfs. But you know what? There are other vaccines. And I want to talk about one other vaccine, which is really notorious. So, so now we have to make it clear. The problem with the flu vaccine is that it doesn't work. That's the problem. You know, you can quibble about, you know, side effects, damage, blah, blah, blah. But it doesn't work. If it doesn't work, then even offering it is fraudulent, number one. And number two, it makes any other suggestion of taking it moot. If you're taking the flu vaccine to prevent the flu and it's not effective, then, you know, there's reason enough to refuse it. You don't have to get into all the other, you know, um, chit-chat and details. Let's take a look at another um, notorious uh, vaccine. This is whooping cough. And this is um, NPR, nationalpublicradio.org, you know, pretty mainstream type uh, publication. May 5th, 2015, and what did they say? Whooping cough vaccine's protection fades quickly. Lately, California's been focused on as a measles outbreak, and it's got started in Disneyland. But in the past five years, state health officials have declared epidemics of whooping cough twice, 
2010 and 2014 when 11,000 people were sickened and three infants died. Now, an analysis of a recent whooping cough epidemic in Washington state shows the effectiveness of the whooping cough vaccine waned, that means weakened, or went away significantly. For adolescents who received all their shots, effectiveness within one year of the final booster was 73%. In other words, 27% of those vaccinated, and these are teenagers, so they've had five whooping shot immunizations, yet 27% still remain unprotected. And the effectiveness rate plummeted from 73% to 34% within two to four years. This is contributing to the increase in pertussis among adolescents, the authors wrote. So pertussis vaccine protects against three diseases, tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis. And we've done a show on those, so I don't need to go over that. It was introduced in 1997 to replace the whole cell vaccine, which caused more side effects. The acellular pertussis vaccine may be safer, but far less effective than the old one. And so the take-home message is that you're protected initially, but it wanes over time. It wanes pretty darn quickly. I mean, if you have to get vaccinated against every single disease every two years, I mean, you're a pincushion. It doesn't mean people should skip the vaccine. Well, hey, the 27% who got five jabs and no immunity, I think they should have skipped it, don't you? Anyway, someone who is vaccinated but becomes sick with whooping cough should have less severe course of illness. Underline should. The author said that new vaccines are likely needed to reduce the burden of pertussis disease. So we're going to make new vaccines. And right now we don't have a new vaccine. So if we don't have a new vaccine and the vaccine we have is not working, then should it be taken? Not only should it be taken, but should people be forced to take it, if indeed it doesn't work. And so Dr. Reginald, who leads the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization, says he doesn't know of any pertussis vaccine development in the pipeline. So he got a vaccine for pertussis. It doesn't work. It's ineffective. And it's led to pertussis outbreaks because it's not effective. And there is no replacement in the pipeline. What is the point of giving it? Now, he also said, get this, perk up your ears, get out your pencil, adding another dose of the vaccine to the vaccine schedule at a later age would not help much based on research that was presented to the immunization group. An additional dose would have very little impact on pertussis in terms of cases prevented. So if getting vaccinated all would have very little impact on additional cases, then why bother? Why bother? The most severe cases are in very young infants, this, this uh, vaccine CDC person says, but the babies can't be vaccinated until they're two months old. So you can't protect newborns before they can be vaccinated. But the CDC recommends that women be vaccinated during the last trimester of every pregnancy, even if they received the vaccine before they became pregnant. The theory goes, babies will be born with circulating antibodies. And there's pretty good evidence. You mean it's not good evidence, it's pretty good evidence? You mean fair evidence? That that will reduce the risk of hospitalizations and death in babies. In other words, the evidence is that it will reduce. There is no evidence that it does reduce. 
So in other words, this is all speculation and hopefulness. There is no evidence that vaccinating the mother the third trimester of pregnancy reduces hospitalization and death in her offspring. In the accompanying commentary, another doctor at UCLA says the findings about the tetanus vaccine, the uh, diphtheria pertussis vaccine, effectiveness were disappointing. Now, let me tell you, things are going to be pretty bad for any doctor to say the effects of a drug are disappointing. Usually, if they can show effectiveness in one person in one million, then the drug is a success, blockbuster, miracle success. And so to use the word disappointing when describing the results of a drug is pretty heavy condemnation, especially coming from someone at UCLA, a major university in charge of promoting vaccines. Previous reports have shown or said that vaccine refusal played a role in the whooping cough epidemic in California. But in pertussis, the disease is caused by toxins that are released by bacteria. The pertussis vaccine protects you against those toxins, but may not prevent you from spreading the bacteria to others and causing illness in them. So the vaccine does not prevent the spread of this disease. And so if you have 100% vaccination, 27% of those vaccinated are not going to be protected. And so if there's a pertussis outbreak, the vaccinated people will not offer protection to the unvaccinated. If anything, they will spread the disease to the unvaccinated because the uh, organism multiplies and multiplies and multiplies in the vaccinated individual, and he's able to spread it to the unvaccinated. Okay. Pertussis is not going to go away with the current vaccine, Reginald said. In other words, what he is admitting to is with 100% vaccination, with this vaccine, pertussis is not going to be eradicated. The vaccine just is not able to do it. All right. So that's uh, the whooping cough vaccine. And in pediatrics, June 2013, volume 131, issue 6, comparative effectiveness of acellular versus whole cell pertussis vaccines in teenagers. And the long and short of it basically is the teenagers who are vaccinated with the acellular vaccine uh, had much less immunity. It was like uh, basically a waste of time. So we have these vaccines, the pertussis vaccine for sure, and the flu vaccine, that are avowedly ineffective. And these are ineffective. How do we know they're ineffective? This is the medical literature that your doctors are receiving. Your doctors are told the flu vaccine is not effective. Your doctors are told the pertussis vaccine is not effective. But vaccinate anyway. Vaccinate anyway. Now, let's take a look at another piece of totally outrageous propaganda. I received this from my niece today by email. She said, Aunt Jennifer, I know there's something wrong with this, but I can't figure it out. Can you help me? And so I'm going to go over this. We're going to post this in the chat room in case anybody wants to uh, follow along. <laughs> there you go. Folks in the chat room have the link. And the chat room is healingwithdrdaniels.chatango.com. 
com. All right. Headlines. 16 years ago, a doctor published a study. It was completely made up. It made us all sicker. Yes, really bomb. All right. In order for a published study to make us all sicker, it would have to have an impact on everybody's health, right? So in other words, it would have to lead me personally to either receive a treatment that was dangerous or not receive a treatment that was helpful or to do something that was dangerous. Okay, so let's take a look at this. So it says, once upon a time, a scientist named Dr. Andrew Wakefield published in the medical journal The Lancet that he had discovered a link between autism and vaccines. Now, so they're saying that, that this doctor found a link between autism and vaccines, and this doctor was, well, dishonest. This was published in 2014, so this was, uh, predated the leak that the CDC fudged its data. After years of controversy and making parents mistrust vaccines, along with collecting money from lawyers who had benefited from suing vaccine makers, it was discovered he had made the whole thing up. The Lancet publicly apologized and reported that further investigation to lead led to the discovery that he had fabricated everything. In the intervening years, millions have been spent on studying this further to see if there was anything that could connect autism and vaccines. This is what they found. Okay. So, 1998. Now, just to let you know, in 1998, I was practicing medicine. And I was not vaccinating anyone. And the kids in my practice were extremely healthy and robust. Okay. But that's when Dr. Wakefield published his first report, 1998. And they said he had no statistics, no control group, relied on people's memories, and made vague conclusions that weren't statistically valid. This is called the case study method, by the way. Okay. And following Wakefield's study, more rigorous studies found, a study of 500 children, 1999, no connection. 2001, 10,000 children studied, no connection. Study from Denmark, 537,000 children, no connection. Study in Finland, 535,000 children, no connection. And a review of 31 studies covering more than 10 million children also found no connection. And they, another trial, a uh, crossover trial, they're saying 14 million children, no connection to autism found in any case in any of these studies. Now, they say, but vaccine vilification survives. One-fourth of U.S. parents believe some vaccines cause autism in healthy children. And there have been zero credible studies linking vaccines to autism. Okay, gotcha. 1.8% of parents opt out of vaccine for religious or philosophical reasons. So even though 25% of parents object to vaccines and think they're dangerous, other 23% willingly give their kids vaccines anyway. Okay. However, in the United States, whooping cough shot up in 2012 to nearly 50,000 cases. 50,000 cases and 20 deaths. This is in 2015. Uh, 2012, sorry. They didn't give you any numbers for the deaths from 2004 or 1980 or 1970 or 1960. We don't even need to look that far. But if we have uh, 50,000 cases and 20 deaths in 50,000 cases, you know, that's, uh, 
that, that's a problem. Or I should say, that's not a problem. So you have 20 deaths in 50,000. And that's one death. I'm sorry, four deaths in 10,000. So four deaths in 10,000. Does anyone know what infant mortality is? Infant mortality, a child's probability of dying in the first year of life, is 60 deaths in 10,000. In other words, these vaccine, uh, these whooping cough-related deaths, let's say, the children who died, who got infected, who got infected with whooping cough, had a death rate less than the kids who did not get infected with whooping cough. I'll repeat that. The children who got infected with whooping cough had a death rate less than the children or people who did not get infected with whooping cough. So infant mortality deaths are 60 per 10,000. Adult deaths, on average, are 80 per uh, 10,000. So, per year. So 4 in 10,000 is the death rate for people who get whooping cough. So it seems just on this alone that whooping cough or having whooping cough is a protective condition that actually reduces your mortality over not having whooping cough, whether you're a child or an adult. And it seems it's not something we should try to protect this or prevent. This is something, again, this is from the um, statistics from the um, pro-vaccine crowd. So now whether vaccines cause autism or not, whether you believe Wakefield's uh, contention that it causes autism, whether you believe this website's contention that vaccines do not cause autism, the fact is a person who gets whooping cough has less of a chance of dying than a person, a healthy person in any category, who does not get whooping cough. This is shocking. So then, based on this information, the statistics given by this pro-vaccine site, you should definitely not vaccinate against pertussis. But they go on to contradict their own statistics here to say that vaccines, these are vaccine myths, the vaccines are ridden with toxic chemicals. Again, irrelevant if the vaccine is A, ineffective, as the pertussis vaccine is, or B, the disease confers longevity, which it appears pertussis does. The decision to vaccinate my child only affects my child. The answer is not so. If your child is vaccinated, he can harbor these diseases and spread them to other vaccinated but not immune children and other unvaccinated children. So actually, vaccinating your child creates in that child a hazard because he can spread the disease. Very dangerous. <laughs> so yes, it is a myth that vaccinating your child affects only your child because it adversely affects other children. Receiving too many vaccines at once can override a baby's immune system. Again, irrelevant if, A, the vaccine is protecting you from a disease that actually helps you live longer. And then drug companies just do it to make profits. Again, irrelevant if the condition you're vaccinating against is actually associated with longevity. And then this uh, ends by saying vaccines work. Again, irrelevant if the disease you're vaccinating against is actually a state of health. Now, 
again, vaccines work is contradicted by the Medscape medical website and the mailings they're sending to the doctor saying, hey, we're sorry, that acellular vaccine that we switched to uh, in the 90s, around the same time Wakefield published his report, uh, is causing epidemics in pertussis, in vaccinated people. And so this is uh, an unfortunate piece of uh, misleading information. I guess you could call it propaganda. But again, no matter whose numbers you look at concerning vaccinations and vaccine-preventable diseases, the numbers all say the same thing, which is the diseases are sufficiently harmless that the death rate among children who catch these diseases is actually less the death rate among children who do not catch these diseases. So vaccinating against them cannot be regarded as a health measure. There may be other reasons to vaccinate, and that's cool. You know, I'm easy. But the health of the child is not one of them. It is absolutely not one of them. So the veracity of Dr. Wakefield's research is, is irrelevant. And even the effectiveness of the vaccine is irrelevant when the disease they uh, protect against has a death rate less than that in the population at large. So if you take the population of infected people, their death rate is less than the death rate of a cohort that's uninfected. And uh, this is shocking. And of course, in every epidemic, the vaccinated people do not fare much better than the unvaccinated people. And so it should be clear that there's a fundamental flaw in the system that leads to harm and death in anyone who engages in it. So going to a doctor is like walking into a human-sized meat grinder. Nothing good's going to happen. The system is designed to promote medical products and political agendas, not personal health. And in the case of these vaccines, particularly flu mist and the pertussis vaccine, we can see the goal here is to simply promote taking the vaccine. So there is no credible examination of even the benefit of the vaccine to the individual who's getting the vaccine. And this is handily sidestepped by saying, well, we have herd immunity, uh, we're doing this for the good of the group, and so damage to any one member is, well, you know, hey, no big deal. So that is today's story. So we're ready for questions, and off the bat here, we're going to handle a question about... Uh, vitality capsules, yay! Hi, Dr. Daniels. I am taking Vitality capsules, and lately I've been getting knee pain and sharp shooting pain along my legs. I drink the recommended water and usually go two times a day. I am also taking turpentine three times a day applied to my thyroid nodule. What's going on? I feel like my nerves are twisted up and sometimes it travels. Okay. The turpentine that you are applying to your thyroid nodules is dissolving them, and that's putting out a lot of toxins. And your two bowel movements a day is not enough to do it. And usually go two times a day. That suggests that sometimes you go once a day. So you, you can't embark on liberating all these toxins with uh, turpentine, and you're only going once or twice a day. So that... That is the key there. So what should you do? Well, 
you should either increase your vitality capsules to increase your bowel movements, or you should add enemas to increase your bowel movements. But this is the problem. The problem is you're liberating toxins by applying turpentine to your nodule, and those toxins literally have no exit. Whenever you start um, vigorous cleansing, you've got to step up your exit. You've got to step up getting stuff out of, the, uh, out of your body, preferably to your colon. Okay. Dr. Daniels, did the UK person solve their 10-bottle order issue? Yes, they did. Okay. Let's see what we have. Okay. Dr. Daniels, I went to the health food store the other day to buy some castor oil, but one of the workers said that the castor oil sold there is not for ingestion, and that ingesting castor oil can cause health problems. Is there a type of castor oil I should buy? Okay, so let's unravel this. Uh, I actually did a radio show on this. It's called um, Natural Healing Myths. So castor oil in some countries is considered to be for ingestion only, and castor oil in other countries is considered to be for topical application only. doesn't matter. So for your... Um, you're looking for healthy castor oil, you're looking for hexane, H-E-X-A-N-E dash free. So you want castor oil that was extracted from the castor bean without using hexane. That's number one. If you have hexane in your castor oil, then your castor oil will cause cancer. Don't want that. Okay, so now you've got castor oil that does not have hexane in it. What's your next step? And so she says, castor oil can cause health problems. Absolutely can. If you're not well hydrated, castor oil can actually make you pass out and hit the deck uh, because it shifts your fluid volume from the blood vessels into your intestines um, and you poop out this fluid that you need. So you've got to be well hydrated, which means drinking one quart of distilled water per 60 pounds of body weight. So make sure you're doing that for several days before you take castor oil. And then, when you, even then, when you take castor oil, once you start having diarrhea, then drink water so you can keep up. You may also want to put some salt in the water. So castor oil can cause health problems. Castor oil can cause a deficiency of sodium and potassium if you get uh, diarrhea and you don't replace those. So, yes, that's true. But what do you do? You make sure you're well hydrated when you take the castor oil. Then once you take the castor oil, you make sure you put a teaspoon of salt uh, in one or two teaspoons of salt in one quart of water and drink that afterwards. And that will preserve your salt. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay, here we go. So someone has gone to the CDC and looked it up and says, in fact, the CDC's own records show that only a few hundred people actually die from the flu each year. And many of those deaths involve elderly people with pre-existing conditions or weakened immune systems. In other words, people... The few people who are listed as having died from the flu often have many other coexisting illnesses, any one of which could have caused their death. But the political decision was made to attribute their their, uh, death to the flu. Risk of receiving a flu shot are serious, such as nerve damage, Alzheimer's, and autism. I certainly say... Uh, in my experience, I've observed quite a few side effects to the flu shot. 
And um, I actually stopped giving the flu shot as well. First, I just stopped all the childhood vaccinations because I didn't see, one, where it was helping, or two, where it just made any sense financially to do. So um, I stopped doing it. And then I had adults who demanded or wanted the flu vaccine. And so I, for a while, I offered the flu vaccine. And I said, you know what? This is not, I don't think, a good idea. Okay. Like Dr. Hans, I went to a garden store and asked if it was safe to use comfrey for health purposes. And they said, absolutely not. This hazards your health and never, ever drink it. Why do you think this is? Okay, the government gives a lot of warnings about certain herbs. And I remember back in the 90s when I first started um, studying herbs and using herbs, uh, what I found was that comfrey was listed as uh, as deadly. And so it took a lot of research and a lot of work to at least figure out that uh, comfrey had some pretty good uses, especially, of course, as nip bone. You just make a compress out of the tea, put it around your sprain or your broken bone, and it heals up very quickly. So a lot of the so-called sources of information are simply unreliable and you have to rely on your own experience and uh, a healthy dose of courage. That's certainly how I found out um, about turpentine. <laughs> I didn't read it in any book. Uh, and so you can get that the details at vitalitycapitals.com forward slash candida. You can also find out there about what to eat um, before you take turpentine and while and after you take turpentine. So it's vitalitycapsules.com forward slash candida. Get your free report today. Don't suffer in ignorance for another moment. (laughs) Okay, so someone says in the chat room, remember, Dr. Daniels can say this stuff, controversial stuff, because she doesn't live in the United States. If she did, you can be sure she would have been arrested by now. That's why you can trust her opinion because she doesn't have to follow standard of care and FDA guidelines, which is true. I do not have to um, follow the standard of care. I do not have a license and no obligation, whatever. So I can actually tell you what's on my mind. I don't have to say, oops, is that the standard of care? Oops, I'm representing the medical profession. Oops, what about my license? So I've already lost my license, so I don't have uh, that little detail. Okay. Dr. Dance, what is your opinion on persons with autism um, taking things to chelate mercury in their bodies? You know the science behind it. I would not chelate mercury in my body. I think it's a very bad thing. Why? When you chelate mercury, you take the mercury, crump it onto something, you make it bigger, and you piss it out through your kidneys and cause kidney failure. This is not good. So that's, not, that's a very bad thing. Uh, you don't want to chelate mercury, uh, certainly not in your blood. If you want to chelate heavy metals, the best way to chelate heavy metals is, one, take a very robust trace mineral supplement that will displace the heavy metals. Then take uh, clay or some other ad, adsorbent, adsorbent in your gut, which will soak up the heavy metals as they enter the gut. But do not chelate heavy metals in the blood. Not good. Okay. Okay. A simple document with a simple herb like cilantro chelate heavy metals from the body. 
Yes. Cilantro is famous for chelating heavy metals. And uh, you can grow it in your backyard and down here in Panama. It's, it's a common weed. You can pick it up right off the ground. Okay. Let's take a look at our chat room, see if we have any questions in our chat room, and we do. I remember this is not medical advice. I do not have a medical license. If you want medical advice, why go see a licensed doctor, of course. Okay. Hi, you're on your air. Your name and your question? Hi, Dr. Dennis. This is um, Tanya. My question is, I heard your answer for the first caller. Um I've been taking the turpentine for quite some time, and I haven't yet gotten over the hump of whatever I'm trying to get rid of. What's, what seems to happen is that I seem to be kind of like baseline, and um, I guess the body parts that are that have been affected, they're like talking to each other. I get the irritation. Then I got to stop taking a turpentine for a few days, and I right. Go how do I how do so I get over taking, that? Hump? Yeah, how do you get over that? Mm-hmm. You're just a long way from it. You've got to stop the turpentine, not for a few days, probably for a few weeks or even months. You've got to go, you know, get the report at vitalitycapsules.com forward slash candida. Mm-hmm. You probably have that, and go back over the first four steps and work harder on those. You you mm-hmm. just you're, so you're is when it you take a turpentine. Uh huh. I'm sorry. When you take a turpentine, you're liberating too many toxins. Your body doesn't have the capacity to to get rid of them. And so until your body has the capacity to get rid of them, you can't take a turpentine. The other thing you have to do is you've got to respect your body's limitations. So if your body doesn't have the capacity to deal with the toxins it already has, then you're not ready to take turpentine and add more to the mix. Mm. Okay. So how... how so, so that would be the thing to do. Uh, one thing in the report that you can um, alter is definitely eat less fruit, like maybe one piece of fruit a day would be uh, more than enough. Okay, your name and your question? Okay, let's go check back with the chat room. Let's see. Okay. Um. <laughs> Are you familiar with, with azomite, the A to Z of minerals, including trace elements? Remember that it's radioactive? Yes, there's lots of rumors. Um, I think you have to really um, be more proactive. So if you think azomite is radioactive, then borrow a radioactive meter from a friend and measure the uh, mineral sample that you have and see if it ticks off the meter. So I think you have to absolutely stop uh, taking people's word for anything that you can check yourself. And, you know, be okay with just checking yourself. And if you can't afford a $200, $500, $2,000 meter, no big deal. Uh, you know, it's the Internet age. So send out an email to your buddy. Somebody's got a meter. Uh, you know, I, I don't have a radioactivity meter, but I have a buddy who does. And whenever he passes through Panama, he brings his radioactive meter and wands my whole house and my refrigerator and my food. And so far, no radioactivity. So uh, check these things. 
So don't don't go by rumors at all. Okay. <laughs> okay. Dr. Daniels, since it's summertime, what are your favorite natural remedies that work for <laughs> jellyfish things, bee things, mosquito bites causing big swollen bumps? So definitely mosquito bites, bee things, uh, I just dab them with turpentine. I don't even bother with mosquito repellent anymore. Um, I just let myself get bit, and if I find a mosquito bite that's itchy or something, I just dab it with turpentine, and that's the end of it. Bee stings, either I haven't ever had a bee sting or it just isn't a problem, but uh, I try to avoid bees. Here, the bees are very big and they're very slow. And if I have a wasp nest that needs to be cleared, my husband does it. So bee stings, I avoid. However, uh, my, I've had patients with bee sting allergies, and they have found that going on a uh, diet of only organic foods, uh, taking milk, thistles, and antioxidants, gets rid of their bee sting allergy and uh, gives them a pretty easy season. Jellyfish things. I am not an expert in jellyfish things. We did have someone on the show uh, that did talk about that, and he suggested urinating on the jellyfish thing. Okay. Uh, have you found natural ways to heal disease? Yes, I have found much natural ways to heal disease. You can go to vitalitycapsules.com and click on replays, and you'll see all the radio shows um, historically and how they handle it. Which reminds me, we should talk about what you should do instead of getting vaccinated. That's a good thing. Um, considering that the vaccines are being given against diseases that are less deadly than um, health itself, the best thing you can do is simply don't get vaccinated. Uh, there is no need to do really anything else. Number one, don't get vaccinated. If you're worried about catching a disease, the second thing to do would be don't go to school. In other words, homeschool your children. So one, don't vaccinate. Two, homeschool. And those two combinations will get you some incredibly healthy, robust children. Now, you can also, if you want to go the next step, is don't feed the kids any processed food. It's very difficult to do in these days. So when I was raising my kids in the 90s, uh, we had no processed foods in the house. And when we went shopping, I would take the kids shopping once a week. And each kid could pick one thing they wanted to get from the grocery store. Usually the health food store, we didn't shop at the regular store. So they would pick up maybe a tofu de cutie. And then they would see a candied ginger candy, and they'd want that. And I'd say, okay you got to put down what you picked up if you want to get the second thing. And by the end of our shopping, they would have put down and picked up five different things. And generally at the end of the, of the um, shopping excursion, they end up with some 25-cent um, treat. But that was it. Once a week, that's all they had. Now, the other thing I did was at home, it was 100% organic, 100% vegan, no processed food. But when they went to relatives or friends or whatever, they could eat whatever they wanted. Uh, you know, whatever they wanted was fine. It was their decision, uh, their body, and they could decide. So uh, my son, <laughs> he would go places with the cousins, and, of course, their parents would stop at McDonald's. He would eat at McDonald's, promptly get sick. And so he decided uh, as a kid that he didn't want to be sick, so he wasn't going to eat there anymore. 
So raising healthy kids is actually pretty easy because um, contrary to the uh, public dogma, kids are pretty durable. It's, it's, I would say it's pretty tough to mess it up, but if you vaccinate them, you've pretty much uh, gone a long way towards messing it up. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, I haven't gotten any mosquito bites this summer. I think it's all the garlic that I'm eating. Yes, I think it might be. Oh, I bought a bag, but don't want to use it. Okay. Someone bought a bag of minerals, and they're afraid to use it, and could they put some on ornamental plants to see how they fare? You could do that, but what's good for plants may not be good for people. Um, You can buy plant mineral supplements that are good for people. Uh, What I found recently is you can buy uh, plant mineral supplements, dilute them as you would for the plant, and actually spray them on your body, and they'll actually be helpful even when applied to your skin. So that brings us pretty close to the end of our show here. I just want to remind people to go to vitalitycapsules.com forward slash candida and definitely get your report on how to drink turpentine. It may be something you don't want to do right now, but, uh, you know, you'll have it. So in the future, if you feel it's something that would be useful, you will have it. As for vaccinations, (laughs) don't do it. One thing I noticed in my practice is the unvaccinated kids were absolutely robust. They were brilliant and they were healthy. So the best way to raise a genius, don't vaccinate. As always, think happens and we will see you next week.